That was Ice-T and Body Count doing Cop Killer, released March 10th, 1992, the day I turned seven years old. I actually saw Body Count perform this song a few years ago at a hip-hop heavy metal crossover concert. It's one of those songs that has a life of its own. It was so controversial at the time of release that Body Count recalled their self-titled album and re-released it without the song. I'm not going to say that one song can instigate a riot. Okay, I'm not going to say that. But the release of this song, a month and a half before Mass Mayhem broke out, well, that shows you how popular music really is a glimpse into the zeitgeist. You need to listen. As St. Augustine said, Audi alteram partem, hear the other side. And you should think of the other side as broadly as possible if you want to forestall the worst of things. Listen. You need to listen. In the last podcast, we talked at length about the killing of Latasha Harlins and the trial of Suja Du. Both came to L.A. under different circumstances, trying to find opportunity in a West Coast city at the edge of the American Lower 48. The interchange between the black communities and the Korean Americans often came in the form of stores set up in low-income neighborhoods like Compton. Chafing between the two groups had gone on for a long time. Latasha Harlins video just opened up the floodgates of anger. Suja's light sentencing by the presiding judge, Judge Joyce Carlin, galvanized already strained relations between Korean Americans and black Americans in the city. We talked about Los Angeles and how in the 20th century, it was fast approaching status as a majority minority city. In that broad look at the circumstances of the Harlan's case, I think there's any number of lessons to learn, but more than anything, I want you to keep in mind the emotion that defines all of the LA riots, the anger. The anger is bright, and it is blinding. It seems to vaporize everything in its path, even human lives. In this podcast, we're going to boost that anger up a notch. First, we're going to talk about the obvious, which is the Rodney King case and its sandwiching of the Suja Du case. We'll do the broad overview of Rodney King so you understand what was going on, but I'll also try and narrow down the scope to the reactions of the Korean community to the beating. I also want to give you a view of the city from the top, namely the positions of chief of police and the mayor. After the last podcast where I focused on the lives of people at the bottom of society, now it's time to hear about the people at the top, their thoughts and feelings, and their missteps. A few characters are going to persist in this story. You can think of them as guides in the landscape. One was Angela O, oh, who I introduced in the last podcast, and she talked a little bit about Joyce Judge Carlin's opinion. She's a young attorney, and she's about to become the spokesperson for the voiceless Korean-American. The other two are politicians, Daryl Gates and Thomas Bradley, the police chief and the mayor, respectively. These two political players will be at the center of the Rodney King beating and the run-up to the riots. Actors large and small will enter the conflict, and I'll try to name people as they come and be judicious about it so as not to confuse anything. But really, one of the basic characters here that you need to know is Rodney King. A 25-year-old black man, Rodney King drove around slightly buzzed from partying with his friends. A little past midnight, King drove past the California Highway Patrol car, which began chase. King panicked. The squad car in pursuit was joined by several other cars. King had reason to panic. If he got pulled over, not only was he a little drunk, but he was also on parole for a robbery conviction. When officers pulled him over, King initially resisted. His resistance didn't last long. 
caught on tape March 3rd, 1991, a little bit before the Sujah Du shooting, the beating quickly made its way onto television. Usually the tape, when you see it, runs by the time King is on the ground, being savagely beaten by four officers with 54 strikes in total on the tape. Several other officers stand by and sort of mill around. Not on tape was the beginning of the interaction with police, which made the entire situation absolutely polarizing. Officers later questioned about it, claimed that they thought King was on PCP, a powerful drug that was known to cause depersonalization and psychosis. Their response to potential harm, however, disgusted pretty much everybody. That included Chief of Police Daryl Gates. I read Daryl Gates' autobiography in preparation for this podcast. I'd read many lay people talking about Daryl Gates, but given that law and order is at the center of this story, I thought I'd at least try to get Gates' opinion on things. An L.A. native, the man who would be chief worked his way up from street patrol to become a longtime leader of the department. Gates's narrative in his book is tough and often a laconic. Here's a clip of Gates talking about his experiences, and you can start to hear the self-assurance that comes across when he talks. He has a drawn face and stern eyes coming across as, you know, central casting for a police officer like T-1000 in the Terminator 2 movie. Hello and welcome to Police Quest SWAT 2. I'm Daryl Gates, retired chief of the Los Angeles Police Department. In my 43 years as a police officer and 15 years as chief, I've seen much of L.A.'s post-war history. The Watts riots, the riots of 1992, the Black Panther and SLA shootouts, the Marilyn Monroe investigation, Robert Kennedy's assassination, the 1984 Olympic Games, as well as literally hundreds of other shootouts and major investigations. If it happened in L.A., you can pretty much guarantee I was there. The style and voice of the autobiography is so strong that critics of the book describe the gruff longman as arrogant, self-centered, and unempathetic. But Gates was proud of his record. He would be the first to tell you that he invented special weapons and tactics and guided the LAPD through the crack epidemic, the 1984 Olympic Games, and as a captain, the 1965 Watts race riot. A note on the Watts riot. It's kind of important for context, although when I'm reading old sources, they mention the Watts riot as something that happened recently. But at this point, you're talking about an event that happened 60 years ago, 1965. It has less relevance now, but for the people living at the time, it had a ton of relevance, if that makes any sense. So let me describe the Watts riot. L.A. police, with their bad reputation, some things never change, got into an altercation with a motorist that turned into days of rioting and resulted in the deaths of 34 people. This all happened just months after the assassination of Malcolm X by Thomas Hagen. Watts, like Compton, was in South L.A., and the National Guard showed up to put down the protests. And it lived on as the worst race riot in American history until 1992 and the tinderbox on building. Here's some news coverage from 65 just to give you the flavor of what Daryl Gates saw as a young captain. Literally hundreds of cars were overturned and wrecked. Two things taken were about 100 firearms with ammunition. Cars by the dozens were burned, their occupants were pulled out and beaten. Molotov cockpits had been flying through the air carrying their flaming destruction. Rioters attacked white and Negroes alike. 148 arrests for theft, shooting and throwing missiles. And this is almost unbelievable in view of all this. As a side note, in a real strange turn of fate, Gates and his ghostwriter were preparing this book called Chief 
after Rodney King's beating in 91, but before the verdict on the trial of the four officers who really participated in the beating of Rodney King came back in 1992. This means his narrative includes the initial beating, Gates's struggle with the department, city government, media, and then ends before the riots begin, which is a shame because I would have loved to have been fascinated by his perspective on the riots themselves. It's really, you get to the end of the book and it's anticlimactic. But back to the story. Chief Gates seemed both furious and bewildered by the Rodney King beating. Officer Powell, for instance, who did a lot of the beating, was raised in a multiracial foster home. Sergeant Stacy Kuhn, the file said, had done mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to once try and save the life of an AIDS-infected black transvestite prostitute. Only one of the officers had a history of excessive force, and he was the least involved of the four main perpetrators. But Chief Gates described his own reaction, his reaction as chief, as utter disgust. Again, and I hope this is the last time I'll say this, but it probably won't be, I want to emphasize that what's clear to me about the Rodney King beating and the Latasha Harlan's case is the importance of video. Video killed the radio star because humans are visual creatures. As unreliable as eyewitness testimony is, we prefer the visual medium to any other for apprehending beauty, horror, and in the end, truth. If we did not have video of these two incidences of violence against black people, we would not know anything about them today. I'm pretty convinced. The Rodney King beating couldn't come at a worse time for the LAPD. It already reeled from criticism, and this just brought it to a new level. In 1984, L.A. had hosted the Summer Olympics. In an effort to disrupt criminal elements so that the international folks could come in, Daryl Gates, as chief, had gone on full offensive against gangs in the city. Remember that L.A. was hosting the Olympics in the worst of the crack epidemic, and previous Olympics had been bombed by terrorists. That didn't happen. But the LAPD kept up its pressure after they began Operation Hammer in response to the Olympics. Operation Hammer was as over-the-top as it sounds. In one weekend in April of 1988, police arrested, get this, 1,453 people. Accusations of racial profiling were thrown at Daryl Gates. Reports of LAPD officers using excessive force abounded, and you get the idea. But Gates would tell you, he'd be the first to tell you, that at the time of the Rodney King beating, he did not have the resources he needed to police L.A. effectively. He actually has some numbers in his biography to back that up. At the time of the Rodney King beating, LAPD had the lowest number of officers per capita than any major city. That is, two officers per 1,000 residents, compared to double that in New York and Chicago. The LAPD had about 15 officers per square mile, while New York had 88. One reason for that disparity is pretty obvious if you've been to L.A. The city really spreads out all over the valley, right up to the edges of the mountains like pancake batter in a skillet. Gates argues that the lack of policing meant California led the country in murder in 1991. That was 3,710 murders in California alone, with over 1,000 happening in L.A. 1,000 murders a year in L.A. That's three people dying by the hand of another person a day. So, those numbers are stark. In avoiding the question of a growing culture of violent behavior in his department, Gates, in his book, shifts blame to Mayor Tom Bradley. So let's reintroduce Tom Bradley for a minute. A former police officer himself, Bradley was the first and only black mayor of L.A. By the time of the Rodney King beating, he was a five-term mayor. 
He was born in poverty in 1917, one of those children of the Great Depression. The son of a sharecropper in Texas, his family played their part in the Great Migration I mentioned in the last episode. Tom Bradley's family moved west to Arizona and finally settled in L.A. After his stint as a street cop, Bradley went to law school. He was an aggressive politician, and I think his clear, deliberate mode of speech made him likable. Bradley had the voice of a radio announcer, not my nasally, terrible radio voice. He really sounded like somebody that would make you feel compelled to sit down and listen. Plus, as you'll hear in this clip, he is able to link national politics to his own election and trash his opponent at the same time. Bradley, a lawyer and a city councilman for the past 10 years, has had to spend a good deal of time just answering all of the Yorty charges. Well, I think the people have been watching me for four years. They're looking at Watergate every day now, and they know what has been happening in government. And I'm confident that as they watch Watergate, they'll make the connection between that and Sam Yorty and the kind of outrageous campaigning that he does. And I would hope that this year in Los Angeles, we finally put an end to this kind of campaigning by scurrilous politicians. I think the best word to describe Bradley's political career is determined. A lot was stacked against him. He ignored it. To grab his first term in office as mayor of L.A., Bradley ran against that white opponent in his video, Sam Yorty, twice. During his 20 years as mayor from 73 to 93, he unsuccessfully ran for governor several times. Tom Bradley reached for what he could, and from what I can read about, had no druthers about falling short. He simply kept trying. The unsuccessful runs for governor surprised everyone, though, because Tom Bradley polled pretty well. He was expected to win. This inaccurate polling for the gubernatorial race is where the idea of the Bradley effect comes in. Put simply, the Bradley effect is the difference between what someone says in response to a poll to how they actually vote. This definitely appears when there is a white and non-white candidate on the ballot. So in response to a poll, some people, the theory goes, feel the need to be politically correct and not be accused of being racist by saying they're going to vote for the black guy or the Hispanic guy instead of the white guy. The Bradley effect, minus the race part, was on full display in the 2016 election, in my opinion, when polls got Hillary Clinton's imminent victory all wrong when people said that they weren't going to vote for Donald Trump, but then did. Anyway, though Tom Bradley lost his governor bid, what he ended up being was the determined mayor of L.A. for so long that I believe they changed the rules when he left office. Bradley was well-loved at the time of the Rodney King incident. Well, well-loved by most, because to me... One of the biggest indications of major problems going into Rodney King was that Mayor Bradley and Chief Gates did not talk to one another. I never ended up getting Bradley's biography. I'm recording this in the middle of the pandemic and don't feel like dealing with the library. Unfortunately, it was also published in 86, so it doesn't have the best bits of political gossip leading up to the Rodney King beating and the L.A. riots. Instead, I'm pulling information about their interaction really from Gates's biography. One thing that Chief Gates describes as being extremely upsetting was Tom Bradley's stoicism. Mayor Bradley would just stare at Gates. Chief Gates, on the other hand, would always share his mind. It got him into a lot of trouble, too, like when Chief Gates said that he had a hunch, yeah, just a hunch, that physiologically, blacks and, quote, normal people, end quote, may react differently to chokeholds, that black people's arteries work differently. Yikes. In terms of these two men, you cannot find two people more different. 
But the mayor wouldn't simply fire Gates. Nope, Daryl Gates had an intelligence gathering operation in the LAPD. Most police departments do. And he indicates in his book that he had a file on Mayor Bradley's office. Quote, Through mutual contacts, I also came to know a lot about the mayor, and quite a bit about the people around him. Many are good people. Some are outstanding. Others, I think, have shut their eyes to some of what goes on in his office. End quote. Now, Gates goes on to say that the mayor's file contains little of importance, which means it contains something of some importance. Anyway, you can bet that Bradley knew he could only push Gates so far. So yeah, we have a police chief, a white police chief, accused of racism and racist comments, and on the other side of the city's first black mayor. You have the butting of heads of two political creatures, with Gates clawing his way to the top of the LAPD, Bradley to the top of the city government, and then looking beyond. The LAPD was increasingly being seen as a loose cannon, while at the same time the city's economy shrank, you saw a crack, an economic recession... Simultaneously, more and more immigrants moved into the city seeking prosperity to the point where the Rampart section of the city of Los Angeles had 41 languages being spoken at once. Bradley postured and said that the LAPD was getting too forceful. Gates shot back that they were underfunded. Listen to KABC correspondent Linda Breakstone talk about the relationship between these two men, just to confirm what I'm talking about. They hate each other. Daryl Gates thinks the mayor is sneaky. He has used those terms. Tom Bradley just wants Gates out. He thinks he's a bully. He never wanted him in in the first place. L.A. crumbled, but the police chief and the mayor squabbled. A thousand people died every year on the streets, and it was only a matter of time before a match lit the tinderbox. Rodney King's beating was, of course, that match. The LAPD and the mayor's office worked on charging the four officers and eventually, slower than most liked, got a set of charges to a grand jury. The grand jury's job was to determine the validity of the accusation before the trial. By March 14th, the four officers in the beating were indicted. That meant that a trial could proceed, a trial that would judge whether the officer's application of force was inappropriate, or appropriate, as it might turn out. The LAPD faced significant pressure to step back from defending the officers involved. Just to give you some context, Tasha Harlins was shot by Sue Jadu on the 16th of March. Rumors started to swirl in the L.A. Times that Mayor Bradley was going to fire Chief Gates. Gates actually got an apology from the mayor saying he didn't know where the rumor started and denied that he wanted Gates out on the street. March 19th, the chief received a letter in the mail that said the following, quote, If you don't resign by March 24th at noon, we will consider you a threat to society, and we will then spend the next five years trying to assassinate you and your family. Checkmate. End quote. Chief Gates, his family now escorted everywhere by plainclothes and uniformed police officers, sat in front of crowds asking for his racist head on a platter. Both Gates and the mayor announced their own reform commissions simultaneously, which prompted a call to Gates from the mayor. On April 1st, Chief Daryl Gates, who had not yet been fired, walked into Mayor Bradley's office just before noon. According to Gates, the mayor looked at him and said, As you know, Chief, I have not called for your resignation. I've been very careful in not doing that, but you are in the eye of the storm. Because I don't think that the healing process that needs to take place can take place, I am today going to ask for your resignation. In that case, Mayor, this meeting is over, Gates said. I will tell you what my answer is. I will not, absolutely will not resign. I won't retire. That's when, according to Gates' own account, he pulled out the big guns. 
Gates brought up the mayor's refusal to resign over a recent scandal and reports that he said, no one is questioning my integrity and I'm going to stay because 8,300 police officers want me to stay. Plus a whole bunch of other people out there who you aren't paying attention to and never have in all your years as mayor. Most important are the police officers. They follow me, Mr. Mayor, and I guarantee they won't follow you. Gates kept going, but I won't bore you anymore with my crappy voiceover. The mayor said nothing as Gates left the room, maintaining his stoicism. Both of these guys were stubborn, bullheaded, and keenly interested in saving face. Gates explains the situation this way, quote, Looking back, I can discern an intricate web of opportunism, spun in City Hall and stretching across the street into the Parker Center. That's actually where LAPD headquarters is. Woven into the aftermath of Rodney King, the mayor wanted to get rid of me, fire me, and was unable to do so because he would have had to charge me with misfeasance or malfeasance, and there was neither. Long frustrated by his inability to control me or silence me, he and his advisors saw the King incident and the attendant uproar as their lever to pry me out. End quote. This is all starting to sound like a middle schooler's journal detailing an epic fight with their best friend. But to Gates's credit, there was not a charge of malfeasance. At no point could Gates be accused of directly ordering officers to take brutal action against anyone resisting arrest. The criticism thrown at Gates was that he led a department with a culture of racism, something the Independent Police Commission accused him of in its long-form report on the Rodney King crisis. The problem with a culture of blank criticism is that it's extremely difficult to prove. How do you prove that a corporate culture holds a certain view? Corporate cultures are, of course, made up of individuals. Every day, the LAPD staff, which included seven to 8,000 officers, made countless decisions. Beat cops made decisions on the street. Detectives made decisions about subjects. Individual decisions might be influenced by culture, but it's not quantifiable. Ah, but what about policy? Surely some of the LAPD policy decisions were a problem. Well, in the LAPD, just like other departments, policies are studied and written and passed. Policies went through the Independent Police Commission. None of the policies said outright about anything having to use force against certain races of people. On paper, the LAPD was above board. Gates' claims, for instance, that Rodney King didn't die because the four officers beating him were following policy on non-lethal strikes was true. Talk about a silver lining. With all this said about the difficulty in pointing fingers, the LAPD was notorious for aggressive policing. Remember the battering ram armored vehicle? And even if that was made up for with community policing or other community-centered activity, on display was a tape that showed how several LAPD officers beat an unarmed man within an inch of his life. I don't even know if I could call it a beating. It looked a lot more like torture to me. The LAPD had done it coldly and brutally, and all the city government could do about it was bicker. Rodney King followed a long string of incidents, like the killing of Yulia Love, a mentally ill woman armed only with a kitchen knife. But really, again, it takes a video to galvanize action. We are visual creatures. I See, I promised I wasn't going to say anything else about video. But it's true. People's houses were being blown open by a battering ram, but it wasn't on video, was it? Eventually, though, for all of Gates' saying he wasn't going to resign and all that, he did. Gates began preparations for his departure. Dickering went on about the date. Initially, they wanted him out by the first of the year, 1992, but Gates wanted to preside over the transition out of office. He announced that he'd be out in early June. 
and that's where Gates's book ends. I gather that him and his ghostwriter had put together the book along the way during the last few years. They probably originally had all these high hopes for the book being published after a long and illustrious career. So the book leaves out his response to the riots, or the lack thereof. One thing is clear, though, and that when the riots broke out, Chief Daryl Gates was a lame duck, and the mayor didn't trust the police department. One other thing was left out of the Daryl Gates book, and it actually has to do with this podcast. Korean Americans. They scarcely get mentioned at all. So what were the Korean Americans in L.A. thinking about while the city government acted childish in the face of rising tension? In the last podcast, I talked about how ongoing strife between Korean American shop owners and black residents sometimes ended in violence. I talked about Korean American reaction to the Suja Do trial. But what I found little about was specific mention of Rodney King by Korean Americans. I read the accounts of many Korean Americans in the course of my research, but I didn't find how they reacted to police beatings. I doubt you could have found many Korean American Angelinos that had nothing to say about Suja Do. But Rodney King? So one answer comes from Angela Oh, the attorney who I said before was in her mid-30s at the time of the riots. Here she is talking about the Rodney King case. Koreans? They didn't understand. I mean, they knew there was this trial going on, and if you asked, most of them would say it was terrible what the police did to this man, but they had no idea that that the anger and the resentment would turn to them. This was my first lesson in understanding. We live in the same space, but we live in parallel universes. So you had the black community seeing reality as their lived experience. You had the Korean immigrant community seeing reality as their lived experience in the same space at the same time. But the understanding was completely different. They could have been across the state from one another. So there was awareness of the Rodney King beating among Korean Americans, and maybe even sympathy. Many Korean Americans worked or lived in black communities and saw the everyday interactions of black neighbors with police. For instance, Here's Carol Park, who wrote a great book about her time in her mother's convenience store in L.A. in the late 80s and early 90s called Memoir of a Cashier. Carol says this about being young and watching it all go down. Quote, I was shocked by the images. I'd heard about police brutality from customers. I'd seen police abuse their power. But I'd never seen cops beat someone like that. End quote. But she goes on to say that it was Tasha Harlins that really stuck out in her memory. Here was a Korean shopkeeper who looked like her. Here was an interaction that Carol Park was used to, hostile black customers. She could also see the brutality of the Rodney King beating, but it seemed remote and not relevant. In many ways, in my time looking back at this, I feel like the alternative reality that Angelo mentions is even more pervasive today. Now, most news is delivered through the internet. How easy is it to silo yourself, to not see any news outside of your bubble? And with daily life, how easy is it to ignore news altogether? I mean, except for this COVID thing. A little hard to ignore that. But I think otherwise, it's pretty easy. You have kids. You have a job. You don't have time to mess around with politics. Remember, as the theory goes, Koreans had lost some national identity and instead seemed to focus in on yanking up their bootstraps. Similarly to the bubble I myself often live in, doing my little history podcast over here, It's clear to me that Korean Americans had not prepared for what was about to happen. And by way of explanations, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here. A little bit of speculation and a little bit of it backed up by some facts. 
I was trying to figure out why the black community suffered the most from negative police interactions. And one aspect of Korean American life in LA that I didn't see examined was the extent to which Korean Americans used drugs like crack that were so prevalent in other low income working class communities. One modern study I read said that Korean American and Asian American drug use in general hasn't been adequately examined, but that the general suspicion is that there was a lower level of drug use in these populations at the time of the riots. Data I found from the early 2000s showed that rising generations of Asian Americans had begun to experiment with drugs, sometimes at a higher rate than other minorities, but that seemed to come from a lower baseline. Fast forwarding to today, drug use is a major problem in Asian American communities, and it seems to be a surprise to everybody. But I don't see evidence of widespread drug use among Asian Americans in and around 1992. If my observation here is sound, well, why is that? What What's going on here? Why weren't poor Korean Americans, maybe some of the refugees that were coming over, why weren't they using crack? Well, for one, I didn't see a hesitation when it came to alcohol use. Korean Americans, like any other group of Americans, were no strangers to alcohol use and abuse. As one Korean American attorney put it, I think his name is Tong Soor, quote, They call Koreans the Irish of the East. Koreans love to sing, drink, and argue. What better way to argue than through politics? End quote. But alcohol is a legal, habit-forming drug where crack cocaine is more acute on pretty much every level. Nobody is a casual crack user. The abuse of alcohol happens over a lifetime, often a whole lifetime. Legally speaking, you can become a habitual user of alcohol, ruin your life, ruin your family's life, and die of cirrhosis. It's an accepted downward spiral in the eyes of the law, but maybe because alcoholism is a slow burn rather than the chaotic blitz of crack. Another reason I could point to for the lack of drug abuse is that many of the first-generation immigrants held real conservative attitudes from the homeland. These ranged from child-rearing to marriage to how one ate, slept, talked, and even held their eyes. I suspect that hard drug use would be seen as utterly unacceptable for Korean Americans. But it's hard for me to pin down the attitudes on heavy drugs in Korea itself. I don't have the language expertise. But I did find evidence of the touch of another class of drug in Korea, namely opium. Drug production and drug running in Korea started in the late 19th century and occurred under Japanese occupation. I almost have to wonder if, and I know I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, whether like many of the events of Japanese occupation of Korea, the opium trade was associated with negativity. But I'm really getting close to the limits of my knowledge, so I'm going to stop right now. But you get the idea. In general, and there were exceptions to the rule, Korean Americans in 1992 did not have the same relationship to city government and the cops as black Americans. Interactions just didn't happen the same. This brings us back to Angela O's idea of an alternate reality. Korean Americans had their own concerns. They didn't have battering rams blowing holes in the sides of their buildings. It's not that they lived without fear, but the fear was of a different variety. They lived in a country where they didn't speak the native language. They lived in fear of gang warfare and going out of business and immigration paperwork. Let's get back to the Rodney King trial. And one of the great missteps of that trial, the four officers involved in the beating would not be tried in L.A. Florence and Normandy, the intersection where the beating took place, was a black neighborhood firmly in the southern L.A. community we've talked about, redlining and all. Concerns floated over a tainted jury pool. The case was hot. And so the trial was moved out of L.A. in a legal procedure known as change of venue. And it was set in Simi Valley. 
Simi Valley is about 40 miles from Florence and Normandy, and it is solidly a suburb of the sprawling city of L.A. And like many suburbs of the 1990s, the city was firmly red. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Library is in Simi Valley, for instance, which is built around an Air Force One jet. You can find pictures of that jet online. Simi Valley was majority white. It had a higher income level than South Central, which isn't saying much since South Central was one of the poorest places in the United States. And to top it all off, it seemed to be the preferred landing spot for retiring LAPD cops looking for a place to spend their golden years. This doesn't sound good, does it? The difference between the location of the alleged crime and the trial couldn't be starker. Prosecutors made their case in a seven-day trial in front of an overwhelmingly white jury, which had three jurors with military or law enforcement experience. The prosecutor, Terry White, was a black man, and you see where this is going. The verdict was set for announcement on Wednesday, April 29, 1992. News crews arranged their cameras outside the Ventura County Courthouse. There are pictures of the announcement that day. The day of the announcement had that same unadulterated bright sunshine you expect out of Southern California. Everyone is in shirt sleeves. The state had brought charges of excessive force and assault against the officers. At 4 p.m., the jury came back with their decision. Acquittal. 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 And more acquittals. Ten felonies were thrown out by the jury. In other words, the officers involved in the Rodney King beating would walk. At this point in the podcast, you've seen two different trials play out. After witnessing acts of violence on video, a significant portion of the population had a verdict in their mind. It wasn't just Angelinos, like with Sunja Du. With Rodney King, the entire country watched. They'd seen the video themselves. It had been on CNN. In the mind of many Americans, there was no possible reason you could have for such carnage. The disappointment and dismay was real. For a moment, I want to talk about that disappointment. One way to wrap your head around the visceral reaction to acquittals is to understand that there's a lot of different kinds of justice. Every one of them has its own arguments. For instance, there's retributive justice, or retributive if you're a Yankee like me. That justice deals with the appropriate meeting out of punishment. Well, in the case of Tasha Harlins and Rodney King, it's hard to look at the verdicts or the sentencing and say that the correct punishment had been made. But that's why I think retributive justice is limiting. I don't think that philosophy really deals with the full dynamics of the appropriate meeting out of justice. Because what does a punishment do for the victim? To me, justice is not just about the punishment. You can disagree, and that's okay. In fact, if you disagree with me, you probably are in the majority. But I think retributive justice becomes a pass-fail test. So thumbs up or thumbs down. And I don't think there's a good way to find the right amount of punishment for someone. So where do I turn if I want justice, but I don't want just retribution? Is there some other way to think about justice outside of punishment? Well, there's some obscure ways of thinking about it. Restorative justice is a legal philosophy, too. It states that justice needs to repair the harm of the crime. Therefore, in restorative justice, there's three parties to every case. There's the victim, the offender, and there's the community. If you look up the concept of restorative justice, you'll find a great Venn diagram, you know, circles crossing over one another. This Venn diagram has restorative justice in that crossover space. One idea that restorative justice pushes is that the community needs justice too. The community isn't just in dialogue with the victim, the community is in dialogue with the perpetrator as well. 
These are some really compelling arguments for restorative justice to me. It attempts, and this might seem weird, but it attempts to bring the perpetrator, the victim, and the community to the table at the same time. Imagine that, I know. How is that going to go? Some people don't like this idea of justice being a three-part process. They'll say it leads to vigilantism or mob rule, that it can remove the rights of the perpetrator. And I think it was my wife that said it when I mentioned restorative justice. She said, yeah, well, if you're murdered, you're not sitting at the table, are you? Which is true. The point I'm driving at is that I don't know that the justice system understood the third leg of the stool here, community. Those jurors deciding the verdict for the four officers, or Joyce Carlin deciding the light sentencing of Soonja Du, may have been correct in how they meted out punishment. They might have been following the spirit of the law but the sense of justice for the community had been left out of the equation. And then again, I go to something our friend Angela O said about the justice system being misapplied as a method for changing race relations. But then you had a system that broke down, and in my opinion it did, because of the perfect storm of inexperience on the bench and media and a public that doesn't understand the limits of the law. The law is not the place where race relations is going to get worked out. It simply is not. Maybe the reason we don't use restorative justice is that the courts still aren't the place to decide community and race relations. Or, more accurately, you can use them that way, but you will pretty much be disappointed every time. This is because I don't think the justice system can ever be perfect enough to deal with the third part of that Venn diagram, the, the community. It's just not ever going to measure up. That's the role of other branches of the government. And we know that the executive branch of the government here wasn't talking to itself. Legislatively, I I have no idea what the the state legislature was doing. Who knows? The fact that it wasn't even mentioned what they were up to and all the narratives I read kind of tells you something. It's too bad. If the courts even had the possibility of dealing with race relations in a constructive way, it wasn't going to happen in L.A. in 92, and everyone paid for it. I want to bring in some other voices to describe their reaction to the verdicts. I want you to hear their voices and how much it angered them what had happened. Here's the prosecutor, Terry White, talking about his reaction to the verdict. Well, my reaction is uh, shock first and then disappointment. Obviously, we feel the uh, evidence warranted a conviction on uh, the defendants and uh, the jury disagreed with us and we must uh, abide by their decision. Here's Angela O oh talking about the moment the verdict was announced. She was talking about this a little bit later in 1992. In any event, so what happened was the King verdict is read and everybody can't believe it. I mean, you know, I listen to the radio and I hear not guilty, 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 not guilty hung with 11 to 1 for not guilty. And I, I'm saying, wait a second, you know, what, what happened here? On the other hand, I'm thinking, well, shoot, these guys must have been really good lawyers, even though I'd not heard of a couple of them before. L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley was reported to say the following, quote, I was speechless when I heard that verdict. Today, this jury told the world that what we saw with our own eyes is not a crime, end quote. Today, we'll go to the mayor live. Today, that jury said we should tolerate such conduct by those who are sworn to protect and serve. My friends, I'm here to tell this jury, no, no, our eyes did not deceive us. We saw what we saw. What we saw was a crime. You know, after the fact, some people saw Bradley's comments as counterproductive or even an incitement to riot. 
And there might be something to that. When you're the mayor of a city on the edge, you have to be very, very careful in your word choice. But first, you have to know that your city's on the brink. And as we've talked about, I don't think Bradley did. It did not take long for the crowd to form at 71st and Normandy, about a block from Florence Street. Rocks and bottles flew. LAPD officers responding to the scene, about a dozen of them, arrived without equipment. No riot gear, not much other than revolvers and batons. When they saw the size and the emotion of the crowd, they left. Gone. Was it a crowd gathering or a mob? Well, I want to make a note on nomenclature right now. In this podcast, I'm going to use words to describe large groups of people engaged in something. Civil disobedience, violence. But in any case, I'm going to use the word mob. I'm going to use the word rioter. I'm going to use the word looter. Part of me wants to use the word protester, but from what I can find, the number of protesters really dwindled as the number of those with intentions of violence increased. What you'll find out is a lot of them weren't even from L.A. But the reason I'm making this note is I want to impress on you that I mean no pejorative in saying the word mob. It's defined as a disorderly or riotous group of people, and that's how I'm using it here. I make this note because plenty of people call what was about to happen in 1992 the L.A. uprising. They're sensitive to the racial overtones of rioting and mobbing, and that's fine. I'm fine with calling it the uprising. In many ways, the Battle of Athens that we covered in that other podcast was a riot as well. It was a mob of men taking up guns and shooting at the county jail. Because this is a story of Korean-American experiences during the riots, I don't think that those victims of the next few days of violence, who weren't government officials, they weren't part of a taxation and policing structure, I don't think they saw it as an uprising. Anyway, let's get back to that group, the whatever you want to call it, throwing rocks and bottles at Normandy Street in a moment. Because I want to talk about one person who was caught flat-footed by the reaction to the not guilty verdicts. That was Police Chief Daryl Gates. He and Bradley gave separate statements. Bradley's was at 4.58 p.m. and Gates's was at 5.38 p.m. If we have civil disturbances, we are prepared to deal with that. And uh, I'm not going to go into any detail. Uh, Our job is to maintain peace and order on the streets. I'm going to let you come to your own conclusions about those statements. Around the white-clad Parker Center, which was the home of the LAPD, it was mostly white left-wing progressive labor and revolutionary communist party protesters that arrived with signs and chants. Other community groups, black, Hispanic, and other white community groups joined them. But who was leaving that building through a back door? None other than Chief Daryl Gates. He was on his way out of town. Daryl Gates' destination? Brentwood, an upscale suburb. He was attending a fundraiser and networking event against Charter Amendment F, as in Frank, which would give City Hall more control over police affairs in the wake of Rodney King. Since he'd already announced his resignation, effective at the beginning of the fiscal year, he was essentially clearing the way for his successor. One of those new levers for City Hall to pull in Amendment F involved a police chief term limit, something Gates hated, even if he was a lame duck. I wonder if he still thought there was a chance he could stay on. He wouldn't. He definitely wouldn't. Gates had not only left town, but he'd sent all of the officers home for the day. Hundreds of detectives wrapped up their shift and went home for dinner, as they would any other day. Many top aides of Gates had taken vacation. At around 6.30, with Gates on the road, a good portion of his LAPD on the way home, the retreating police in South Central set up a command station 2.3 miles away from Florence and Normandy, where that big group of people was gathering up. 
Even if the LAPD had the manpower to respond, which they didn't, that's a hike. In their new command center, the LAPD did nothing. More police arrived, and they sat waiting for orders. In the meantime, that group at 71st and Normandy grew. It got more unruly. It got more angry. To give you a visual of South Central L.A., to kind of put the picture in your mind, I want you to imagine a place of concrete. The sprawl of L.A. is mostly low-rise, no higher than two or three stories, and by the end of April, it's hot and dry outside. Once that group started to gather at 71st and Normandy, trash and debris littered the streets, and the milling crowd surged back and forth listening to whatever new development was on the news or looking at the motorists coming by. Cars tried to speed through the area. Some crashed. Driving into the riot was a motorist named Choi Sai Choi, a Chinese-born immigrant of only a few years. According to what I've seen, Choi was the first Asian-American victim of the L.A. riots. Also, and I'm having a hard time saying this definitively, if Choi Sai Choi wasn't the first bystander victim of the L.A. riots, he was close to it. Choi Sai Choi later said in court that he stopped his car out of fear of hitting someone. The streets were alive with people. When Choi stopped, it only invited the crowd to converge on him. Beaten badly, Choi Sai Choi might have been the first fatality if a black firefighter turned Good Samaritan named Donald R. Jones hadn't jumped into the fray. He got the attackers off of Choi and stood over the injured man trying to figure out what to do. In the video footage, you can see the crowd standing off a spell, facing Donald Jones, and you can almost feel the potential for violence. According to Jones, who talked about it in a documentary, someone in the crowd told him, quote, I don't care who you are, but you have a minute to get out of here, end quote. That was enough for Jones to make a move. The firefighter put Choi in the passenger seat and told him to keep his head down. He then drove the car to the local fire station and brought Choi to safety. Without police presence, anyone wanting to put their neck on the line, guys like Donald Jones, were in short supply. Choi's beating was followed by others at 71st and Normandy. One of the most dramatic beatings of the early hours of the riot was that of Reginald Denny. And in another case of Video Killed the Radio Star, it was live images splayed across the news that made Reginald Denny a household name. Denny drove his dump truck full of sand through Englewood with his radio off, having no idea what he was driving into. He was heading down Florence Road, then took the turn on the Normandy, the site of where Rodney King had been beaten, which took him to 71st. Reginald Denny had traveled right into a race riot. And I think it's obvious that his race is what determined what happened to him next. I'm going to play you some audio now. The voice you hear was Zoe Tur, nay Bob Tur, a helicopter pilot for KCOP-TV. Yes, K-COP. What a coincidence. There's some breaks in the audio as Tur talks about not only Reginald Denny's beating, but their advice to the unprepared LAPD. Remember, at this point, the LAPD has already retreated from the immediate area and turtled up in their other headquarters. They're trying to make a decision. They have set up a tactical alert. There's another driver badly beaten. So, folks, here's the situation from South Central. Drivers of automobiles and trucks that enter this area can expect to... Uh, oh, look at that. Terrible. And there's no police presence down here. They will not enter the area. That's right. This is attempted murder. No, there's, there's no... There's no uh, shutting down Florence. Let's shut Florence Boulevard down. That's the answer. We're going to tell the LAPD to do that now. Tell LAPD to shut Florence Boulevard down and Normandy because people are still driving through here. Reginald Denny received his beating live on the air. 
Tur, an accomplished helicopter pilot and camera operator, followed an L.A. tradition of helicopter reporting. You see, L.A. TV news station KTLA had invented the concept of a news helicopter in 58 and deployed it in 65 for the Watts riots. The overhead view of the 65 riot was so impressive that the LAPD and the National Guard requested footage for tactical purposes. So imagine the sophistication developed between Watts in 65 and now in 92. Helicopter travel let them avoid the legendary L.A. traffic. So reporters like Tour and the airborne camera crews, they had all the tools they needed to put out high-fidelity film of the rising bedlam in L.A. and then beam it across the country. Unbelievable. South Central Los Angeles, we're seeing a dark day here in Los Angeles. The LAPD is nowhere to be found. I, I feel very frustrated. I used to... They're picking his pockets now. I... Okay, I think we just took a round. I think we just took... Well, this is our job and we're going to stick with it. Reginald Denny did survive, though barely. Passerby helped him, putting themselves in great danger in doing so. They had to guide Denny as he drove through a mob of throwing rocks and bottles. I try to imagine what it sounded like to be on Normandy Street. Broken glass, screams, the sound of metal striking metal. Eventually, the blood in Denny's eyes prevented him from seeing the road, and a good Samaritan took over the driving. The doctor who received Denny at the hospital said that in another 30 seconds, and he might have died. There were definitely other people who gotten beaten up in the first few minutes of the riots. But why the fearsome treatment of Reginald Denny and Choi Sai Choi, who were almost beaten to death? Let's bring back Carol Park, who wrote Memoirs of a Cashier, and listen to her commentary. She had something interesting to say that I hope explains the vicious violence against Choi and Denny. Quote, In the area, she means Compton, there was a silent racism that we all lived by. Mexicans and Asians got along better than Asians and blacks. Whites were cool with the Asians and Mexicans to a lesser extent, but not so much with African Americans. Mexicans and blacks banded together when it was necessary against the whites and the Asians, and so it went for years. A quiet alliance between races that no one dared confirm or deny. We just lived that way. I lived that way. End quote. Why would it work this way? Well, two sociologists named, I'm probably going to butcher their names here, Blake Blaylock and Bonacic came up with at least a bit of a description for why rioters in Compton, who were black and Hispanic Americans, might have struck out against Asians who worked in their own communities every day. It's called the middleman race theory. It points to the phenomenon of certain racial groups occupying a middle state in society. They don't get the racial animus between the lowest racial rungs and the highest racial rungs, but they often become victims during bad times because they're sort of a proxy for the upper crust. In this case, Korean-Americans owned a slew of small businesses, like the ones we've mentioned, liquor stores, of course, but grocery stores, restaurants, pawn shops, everything in between. Remember, the Asian-American is supposedly the model minority. Well, the flip side of language used around model minority status is that if Asian-Americans are the model minority, then black America must be the example of a bad minority, right? This is ridiculous, but you see the issue. And for instance, in 1966, the New York Times was writing opinion pieces about how Japanese Americans were the model minority. They were doing so in the middle of race riots like Watts. 
These were old grudges, born out in the street at 71st and Normandy that day. The middleman race theory isn't foolproof, but it's interesting to consider because it's hard to describe why these things were happening. The riot going on at 71st and Normandy shifted south to the infamous Florence and Normandy intersection. The sun started to set. The streets were in shadow, but the sides and walls of the building still glowed orange. As the rioters moved closer, Korean shop owner William Hong fled his liquor store near the intersection. Where did he go? Simi Valley, ironically, where he made his home. Hong immediately got on the phone and called other Korean shop owners in the area, telling them to run. The situation at the original site of the King beating, Florence and Normandy, had turned into madness. I believe William Hong's shop was the first Asian-American-owned business looted in the L.A. riots. We have some detailed on-the-ground reports of what happened to William Hong's liquor store that afternoon. The L.A. Times reported on a young, undocumented immigrant from Mexico City named Leticia watching Hong's store being looted. Quote, Leticia went inside Hong's store. It was muddy and slippery. Everybody was pushing and shoving. Many of the apartment residents took milk, butter, and other food. Leticia, who has no children, did not, end quote. Instead, Leticia and a few others took beer. She drank enough that she fell right asleep. Leticia's roommate, Anna, had locked herself into the apartment when the violence started to break out. She only emerged when a neighbor said a group of men was on their way down the street with torches. At this point, the sunset was getting along in the tooth, so I can imagine the twilight glow of those flames as the arsonists approached the store. Anna reported that, quote, they were thinking of every excuse they could to burn the building. This Korean cheated us. This other Korean was mean to us, end quote. Anna pleaded to the men not to burn the store down. One of the group knew her. Instead, they torched the grocery store across the street. Angela Oh, the Korean-American attorney, told her own story about getting to the scene of the riots. Her recollection and others reminds me of how people talk about where they were during 9-11, with the clarity that comes from experiencing a traumatic event. If you hear silverware in the background, it's because this is an excerpt from a speech she gave in front of the Asian American Journalists Association. And so um, about 8 o'clock, 8.30, I, I excused myself and I started to walk out of the restaurant and I caught on the TV monitor the fires that had been started. So I stood there and watched for a second and um, there were reports coming out that, you know, these stores. And then I recognized one of the, the locations as a Korean-owned, uh, predominantly Korean-owned swap meet area. And I thought, oh my God, I don't think I'm going to go down to the AME Church or Parker Center. I think I'm going home. So I went home and I turned on the TV and sure enough, there were repeated reports on every channel about these fires going and don't worry, everything will be calm by tomorrow morning. We can all go to work still. You know, there are lots of fires going, but, you know, it's partly expected. We're looking for the police chief. He'll be on at, you know, midnight or whatever. That franticness I hear in what she's talking about reminds me of all the riots during 2020. That, of course, was all the violence following the death of George Floyd at the hands of police. I remember watching on the TV just a couple months ago, fires breaking out, beatings in the street, police fighting with protesters. Seeing your society break apart one piece at a time is a hard thing to watch. As night fell, columns of glowing smoke rose from burning shops across South Central. Looters broke into shop after shop, grocery store after grocery store. Looting also included the odd gun store. Many looters set the buildings alight after they broke into them. There are probably multiple reasons for this, but one of them is it destroys evidence that you were there. It's around this time, twilight on April 29th, that the riots started to get cloudy. And I don't mean from all the smoke billowing. Helicopters backed off as rioters squeezed off rounds at them. 
Those intent on violence ran amok. The LAPD backed off wherever they could, and it started to get more and more difficult to track the gangs of people walking the street. As the media is known to do, they started to try to fill time. The voice you're about to hear is NFL Hall of Famer Jim Brown, who gives his commentary on the situation, and listen close for the name drop. Violence begets violence, and when your leadership uh, does not set the proper example, uh, Latasha Harling's case, uh, you talk about all of the SNL scandals, you talk about Donald Trump, you even talk about uh, Congress and the bouncing of checks. And these young men and women out there, they notice all of that. The first time I heard that clip, I thought that he meant the SNL crisis like Saturday Night Live. But what he was talking about was the savings and loan crisis, which crippled the financial sector and, of course, had downstream effects economically on L.A. It's just amazing some of the things you find when you're doing this kind of research. At 9 p.m., Mayor Tom Bradley called California Governor Pete Wilson and requested a state of emergency. He got it. Here's the governor talking about that state of emergency, as well as the 2,000 National Guard troops that were going to be deployed. I'm advised that uh, there is someone from the Secretary of State's office on the way over to accept this proclamation of a state emergency, of a state of emergency for Los Angeles City and Los Angeles County. This is uh, in response to a request by Mayor Bradley. As a result of the discussions that we have had, there will be as many as 750 California Highway Patrolmen. Additionally, we have made available some 2,000 National Guardsmen. They are on standby, prepared to uh, move. Transport has been arranged, and it is our purpose here at the state government level to restore law and order and to minimize the danger to the residents of the area. This is a matter that needs to be settled in the courts and not in the streets. Thank you. The National Guard's going to come, right? And everything's going to get better? Well, you'll find out it's a little bit more complicated than that. The LAPD made weak attempts to stop rioting and enforce a curfew, as well as bans on gun and ammunition purchases. But Daryl Gates wouldn't get to the command center, that one that's two miles off. He wouldn't get there until nearly midnight. I hope that fundraiser went well for him. His department had spent the entire night in disarray. In the meantime, firefighters who set out to fight blazes ran into trouble. One firefighter was shot in the face as they raced in the midst of violence on Western Ave. Building fires went out of control as firefighters deemed the area too dangerous. Flames from destroyed stores licked at the sky. The fire took on a life of its own. It stretched to reach into neighboring stores and homes. Many of those stores were Korean-American-owned. Well, I don't know when Soonja Du's Empire Liquor Market burnt to the ground. Based on the violence of the night, where it happened, and the number of Korean businesses assaulted, I wouldn't be surprised if the Du's lost their store the night of the 29th. As we turn to April 30th, the first full day of the L.A. riots, I get the impression that the LAPD got their legs under them police started to get into firefights on the street, which, yes, sounds frightening. But now the protesters were shooting at the cops instead of at each other. The LAPD deployed armored vehicles in some cases, maybe even that battering ram. The police presence sent mobs scattering. By the end of the night, 10 people had died, not in police shootings, but by gun-toting rioters who likely raided pawn shops and other stores for weapons. As we got into the early hours of the morning, April 30th, 
the riot seemed to quiet a bit. Those out for mayhem headed home, maybe for a few hours of sleep. Maybe that's the reason that the next morning, the mayor's press conference, given alongside Chief Daryl Gates, sounds uncoordinated and in some ways hopeful. I'm going to play this for the next few minutes or so because I think it gives you a real taste of what was going on or what wasn't going on in terms of response. Keep in mind that during this press conference, the worst of the riots was yet to come, especially for Korean Americans. Why do you think this happened? We are having looting. If you look over here, uh, we're showing some aerial uh, videos here. We've seen looting. We've seen more fires. Chief, what do you think it's going to take to bring the situation uh, under control? I'm not sure what uh, what you're pointing at. Uh. Well, we have a television uh, monitor over here on the Channel 2 News, and uh, all morning we've had reporters out there from looting reporters uh, in different parts of the city, continued looting, new fires that are continually breaking out this morning. And my question is, what do you think it's going to take uh, to bring this situation into control? Here is another fire. Uh, what is the location of this fire? I'm going to check with our group right now. What is the location of this fire? Well, it's going to uh, require uh, some patience on the part of everyone uh, and uh, a great number of police officers, law enforcement people deployed in the area, and we are doing that. Uh, we are, uh, the National Guard uh, will be deployed uh, as quickly as we can. We have uh, uh, available to us, or will have available to us very shortly, about uh, 850 uh, National Guard. Uh, we are in the process of... Uh, of designing missions for the National Guard, and uh, once they are in place, we will uh, we will uh, put them uh, to work uh, on those missions. May I make May I make an observation? Uh, because I'm told that there's some city employees who are under the impression that they are not to come to work today. Let me make it clear to all of them: if you don't come to work, you don't get paid. Nobody is being excused today. Why do you think this happened? Why did this violence break out? What, what is your analysis? You don't want to know, do you? <laughs> you want to know. Again, what's interesting about this clip is they didn't know that the worst was yet to come. You heard him mention the National Guard, remember? When you consider that the police force was 7,000 people to begin with, another 800 or so National Guard is not going to cut it. Plus, from the statements in that press conference, doesn't it sound like they were having trouble deploying the National Guard? What was the holdup? Well, you'll hear more about that and the gap that the National Guard delay put in enforcement in a city full of rage. According to my almanac, the high temperature on April 30, 1992 was around 75, so the morning started out cool and dry. A persistent breeze blew through. That would fan the flames. Starting in the night of April 29th and moving into the morning of April 30th, mob violence came to Koreatown the cultural touchstone of Korean-American life. The brutal struggle that took place would introduce Korean-Americans to the rest of America in the most shocking way. But all that will happen in the next chapter of the podcast, where we'll delve deep into the defense of Koreatown and the worst days of the L.A. riots. I want to thank you for listening to this second episode in the series. You can always reach out to me with questions, comments, discussion, you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash tinderboxpodcast, or the SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash tinderboxpodcast. Happy to hear from you. Want to see your comments. Please leave a review if you have any thoughts about what we're up to, and we appreciate your support. And so for now, I wish you luck. Stay safe out there in the tinderbox.